Darkness and silence. Darkness and silence. This is how the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is how they end. In darkness and silence. It's also how the New Testament begins. In darkness and in silence. Advent begins in the dark, as writer Fleming Rutledge has said. Advent begins in the dark. And it's into the silence and this darkness that that God breaks. Advent is the yearly celebration of remembering that God breaks into our silence. He breaks into our silence with his word. He breaks into our darkness with his witness. He is with us. He breaks in through his presence. And so Advent is the great truth that God makes good on his promises, that he breaks a bright dawn across a dark night. Now our text today is famous and is brimming over with, with hope and with joy. In today's text from Luke, we see a heavenly being, this angel Gabriel, come to Mary and announce that she will give birth to the long-awaited son of David, which is good news because the people have been in a bad way for a long time. Now today's text marks our transition from the study of the life of David and how the life of David points us again and again and again to, to King Jesus. And it's the transition into our Advent series. Next week begins the Advent season. Now a couple, a couple things on that word Advent. What does that mean? Well, Advent, our word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, and, and it means arrival or coming. It, it refers to waiting. Adventus in the ancient world was the arrival of of the Caesar, the arrival of a great king to a city, everyone would be expectant. They would be awaiting this great king to come. Everyone's eyes would be on the horizon, waiting for the parade to roll in across the streets through the city gates. Now for us, Advent is the arrival, the coming of Jesus. And there's two key senses in which we need to understand this word. The first sense is his first coming. His incarnation or taking on flesh as an infant. Jesus coming as a human child. And that's the first sense. And so the season prepares us for Christmas, for the arrival of baby Jesus. But there's another sense. If you, if you zoom out, if the scope gets larger, the other sense of Advent is the waiting for the arrival of his second coming, the returning king. He's coming back. This time, not as a child, but as the king who will renew all things, who will wipe away all tears. And so in the season we expect, we lean forward, we look, we watch, and we wait for God to come, for God to break through, for God to act, for God to do what only God can do. Now there's no proper understanding of Advent if we don't feel the aching if we don't feel the yearning, if we don't feel the, the long waiting that is inherent in the Old Testament. And the life of David is a key part of that forward yearning ache for God's promises to be fulfilled. Now in the haunting and hope-bearing Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you have that one verse that maybe you heard growing up and you're like, I have no idea what that means. 
Uh, that's, that's odd. What does that mean? And it's the verse that, that calls Jesus the key of David. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. What does that mean? Jesus, the key of David. Well, Jesus is the one who holds the key of authority, the the one who holds the key of power. He is the king that opens the gates to the kingdom of heaven. He is the king who showers his people with blessing. And also, he is the one who holds the key to making sense of this baffling King David. Because David was a foreshadow. He was a pointer to the true king. And if we look briefly at the life of David, so say we're going to do the 30,000 foot level here really briefly, we see brilliance, right? We see brilliance and we see brokenness, we see beauty, we see brutality, and we find ourselves baffled at the king who composed so many hallelujahs but also unleashed so much devastation and so much ruin on his family and the kingdom. The shepherd king, right? The, the warrior poet that was called a man according to God's heart, the one chosen by God to be king over his people. He started out so brilliantly, just brilliant, an underdog who kept inquiring of the Lord, who was, who was doggedly determined to stay dependent upon God. He was a God-trusting, serpent-slaying, compassion-giving worshiper of Yahweh. But like a meteor, like a million tons of light blaring through the night sky, the awe-evoking light fades and the bright burning disappears into the darkness. David's stories grow dark. Sin and family dysfunction take over the stage. And, and then David dies. He dies amidst continued kingdom drama. One of his sons is trying to steal the, the throne from him while he's still alive, but then the throne goes to another son, Solomon. There's just more gloomy cutthroat games of intrigue and and power grabbing. And if that wasn't enough, as David dies on his deathbed, he's a strange, troubling mixture. He, he talks to his son Solomon, and, and he says, Solomon, listen to the words of the Lord. And you're like, ah, oh, good king. That's a good king. Listen to the words of the Lord. And then he drops some disappointing directions to go and assassinate some crafty, character, some crafty characters that he had already given grace to. And you're like, what is happening? You're just left scratching your head. Now, If you zoom out further and you watch the story plot along, we see the rule and reign of Solomon. Starts out brilliantly, just just like King David. But David, or but Solomon, like his dad, David brings fractures and damage through his own sin. And that eventually will lead to a broken kingdom, a divided kingdom, north, south, Israel to the north, and Judah to the south. And, And you can say, in what I admit is a far too oversimplified statement, from that point on, The rest of the Old Testament is this constant, sad replay of kings failing, of people failing, and God proving himself faithful over and over and over to save the people from their sin. I mean, even after hundreds of years of failing kings, God's faithful. Even after the exile to Babylon, when God goes in and he brings the people home, the hearts of the people still turn over and over again from him. It seems humanity needs a miracle. They need somebody outside of themselves to save them. They need a hero. Or as the the poet W.H. Auden said, nothing can save us that is possible. 
Nothing can save us that is possible. In other words, there's nothing that we can possibly do to save ourselves. We need a miracle. We need heaven to intervene. Now, as the Old Testament ends, it does so with a prophecy from Malachi saying that someday God will bring that healing. He will bring that miracle. A son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and he will restore all things. He will restore the people in right, to right relationship to himself and, and to each other. But then after that prophecy, silence, darkness, 400 years Silence and darkness. There's 400 years between the narrative uh, of the last bit of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and the start of the narrative of the New Testament. There's 400 years. Sometimes I wish publishers would take and put about 400 blank pages in between the Old Testament and the New Testament just so we could see in dramatic fashion the ache, the, the human yearning, And longing for God's promises to be fulfilled day after day, year after year of where is he? Why the silence? Why the darkness? Well, after all those pages of history turn, after those 400 years go by, we come to the Advent passage of the book of Luke here. So quick setup on our text, just a little bit. this is, this is a thousand years from the time of King David. It's 400 years from the time the Old Testament, the last bit of the Old Testament happens and is written. But it's a thousand years from King David. And it's a dark and it's an oppressive time. Israel's fractured. They're a polarized people with political and social divisions. It's like an election year in the United States. It's just a mess, right? They are squeezed on all sides. They're squeezed on all sides by the iron fist of Rome. The Jews are a people looking for a way out. They're looking for a way forward. They're looking for a way through. They're they're looking for liberation. They're looking for some kind of revolution, looking for some light in the darkness. And then the message comes. Then the message comes from heaven. Not to the center of of power, not to the golden temple, not to Jerusalem, not, not to the influencers. But the message goes out to the margins. The message comes to the sticks, the backwoods, not Capitol Hill, not Wall Street, not Times Square, but Nowheresville. The message comes to a peasant girl who lives in the boonies. The messenger's name is Gabriel. He's an angel, an angel who last we saw him, at least in the Old Testament, he's talking to a guy named Daniel about the future king. Well, Gabriel is back on the scene And he comes from heaven to Nowheresville. This is where we pick up where the silence is broken. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Look how Luke writes this. A city of Galilee called Nazareth. Now, why doesn't he just say Nazareth? Because most people have no clue where Nazareth even is. It's it's a small blip. It's not even on most ancient maps. It's a bit like Philo, California. You guys know where that is? It's a bit like Philo, California in Mendocino County. Now, do you know where it is? 
Yeah, it's up, up north, right? That's I say in Mendocino County because it locates the town that most people don't know. It's a town of about 300-ish. You blink as you drive through, you're, you're just going to miss it. Well, Philo, Mendocino, Nazareth, Galilee. Our, our author is telling us something. He's telling us that the Advent King, Jesus, is born to a peasant girl in a backwater town that nobody gives a rip about. This is weird. This is the king of the cosmos. He comes from humble origins. This Jesus comes from humble origins. He comes from a blue-collar household. He doesn't come from a place of privilege or a place of of worldly power. He's an unlikely king, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He's someone of counterintuitive origins. He's an underdog, you might say. He comes from humble origins, and I think that's encouraging to us. I think it should be encouraging to us. Because this Savior is not aloof. He knows the ordinary grind of life. He gets our days. He gets our lives. He understands. Yet he also comes from heaven. Comes from an extraordinary origin. So the splendor of heaven invades rustic Nazareth through, through this messenger. And through Mary, this baby that is born, the light of heaven meets the dust of earth. Jesus will be the son of God, but also the son of man. And and Advent, this this should remind us that Advent tells us that God must do the thing. God must do the thing. God must break in to do what we can't do. It should also remind us that Jesus comes from historical origins. We're not dealing here with myth and fiction. What are we dealing with? Real places. Real longitudes, real latitudes, real, real zip codes, real people, real family tree. Jesus has real family DNA. In fact, we see here that he will be in the line, the family line of King David, which is good news because the Savior was promised to come through the line of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, the angel then says greetings. He comes to Mary and he says greetings, but you can translate that word as rejoice. That was a way to greet somebody. Rejoice! rejoice he brings rejoice worthy news advent is a cause for rejoicing and what does he call mary oh favored one in other words grace saturated one one showered with undeserved kindness grace An undeserved gift is at the heart of Advent and Christmas. Grace, an undeserved gift, is at the heart of the season. Jesus is a gift to humanity. The humility of God and the glory of God, the combination of these these two that will lead to our salvation comes as a gift, humility, glory, and grace. Jesus is not somebody we deserve. Christmas is not a reward, not something that we earn. Christmas comes as a gift. The kingdom of God is a gift to the kingdoms of the world, which I should say, by the way, puts politics in its place, important, but not ultimate. Jesus gets top billing. And notice Mary's initial response. She's a bit freaked out, isn't she? She's freaked out. Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that this might be. I love, I love the humanity of this, and we have to be careful 
of when we read the scriptures of not seeing the earthy humanity that is just in the text. These are real people. This is a young girl. Heaven is colliding with earth. The supernatural is, is meeting the natural. And, and this young lady is distressed and troubled for two reasons. Why? Well, one, just because of what I just said. Supernatural and natural are, are meeting. Heaven is, an ambassador of heaven has come to earth and is speaking to her. Right? This is troubling. This messes with you. Second reason, she knows her Bible. She knows that in the scriptures, at any point in the scriptures, when God makes a special appearance to somebody and says, hey, I, I need to talk with you. Oh man, that means the whole trajectory of your life is going to change. You are going to be riding a current on the stream of, of history, the drama of redemption that radically reorients your life and will cost you greatly, but is the best news possible. She knows this changes things. Here's another Advent truth. Jesus breaks into our norm. He disrupts the status quo. Advent should disrupt our ordinary course of operations. Is Advent this year going to disrupt your ordinary course of operations or will it be life as usual? The mystery and the miracle of Christmas disrupts our plans. The Christ child disrupts the darkness and the brokenness that we've become so normalized to and have participated in and helped create. Jesus comes in a strange way and he messes everything up in the best, most wonderful possible way. We should see Christmas as a wonderful disruption that rewrites our stories. Now let's continue to hear what heaven has to say. Verse 30 to 32. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, you will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So here Gabriel lets us in on a very, very important truth. This long-awaited descendant of the King of David, he's, he's human. But not only human, fully divine. Jesus is human, born of a woman, right? Though his conception was miraculous, he was born like we all were through the labor pains of pregnancy, he was born through pain and into the pain of this world. This tiny infant body felt the chill of that first night, and his body would age and feel the aches and pains of being human. He knows the aches of being flesh and blood in a beautiful and a severely broken world. But this one who's human is also divine, right? He's also divine. Most people know his name. He's the most famous man in the world, right? There's a Time Magazine article called uh, who's, who's the Biggest? The Most Significant Person in All of History. Top four. Jesus, Napoleon, Muhammad, Shakespeare. Go down the list. Maybe Taylor Swift's on there. I don't know. Like the list just, it depends on the list. It depends. There's lots of lists. But you go to any list, like Jesus is the most famous human being across the globe throughout the centuries. So, okay, we know that, but do we know what the name means? 
Well, the name in Hebrew, Yeshua, means God is salvation. God is our rescue. His very name says who he is, that, that God is our rescue, that God is the one who does what needs to be done. He is the waited for one. And this Jesus, he's born of a virgin's womb, miraculously, so Jesus is divine, God in the flesh. And maybe, maybe um, you're, you're visiting today and you're like, that sounds crazy, okay? So it does, I understand. But this is the miracle and the mystery of Christmas. It's not to be tamed. It's not to fit. The, the wild and wonderful plans of the creator don't fit within the cerebral box of, of the, the creature. God within a woman's womb. Christmas comes as a miracle, as, as a gift. There's a glorious wildness to Christmas that we keep trying to wrap up in paper and control. The incarnation, God in the flesh, the immensity of an eternal and infinite God wrapped in the finite frame of a human being. It's an immense wonder, it's a mystery, and as Karl Barth once said, perhaps, perhaps even here we may joyfully say yes. Say yes to the mystery that our souls are shaped to say yes to. Well, Gabriel then makes sure Mary uh, and us know um, the connection, to see the connection to King David. So, he wants us to see how the promises are being filled. Look at verse 32b through 33. And the Lord God will give to him, to this baby, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There's, there's going to be no end. No end. So here we see this historical, humbly born, heaven-sent, gift and status quo disruptor who's fully human and fully divine. He is the son of God. He is the son of David, the one who has been long promised. And, and if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that we've been going through this sermon series to show how all the scriptures are beautifully integrated and they all point us to Jesus and how the life of David uh, functions as a signpost or a foreshadow pointing us to Jesus. And so here, let's, let's see a few of these. Let's look at the parallels. Let's see how the shadow points to the substance. Well, like David, Jesus is the faithful shepherd born in Bethlehem. And like David, Jesus is the unexpected underdog king. David was the runt of the litter. Jesus is just some anonymous blue-collar kid out in the boonies. Like David, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit by way of a prophet. Samuel anointed David. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and anoints him for the ministry. Like David, this Jesus will be an outcast, a refugee, will be on the run. And remember, David had to go into the wilderness. Jesus had to go, fled to the wilderness, and fled down to, to Egypt. Why? Because they both had a crazy, megalomaniacal king who was out to kill them. Who was the king that was after David? Saul. Who was the king that was out to kill Jesus? King Herod. Like David, Jesus gathers a ragtag and odd crew that shouldn't be together, but they come together because he unites them. Like David, Jesus refuses to take the throne by force. David will not kill Saul and grab at the throne. 
that's rightfully his. He's not going to do it. And Jesus will not coerce his people into the kingdom of heaven. He woos. He, he shows them his love. He loves them into the kingdom. It is a kingdom of affection, not a kingdom of coercion. Like David who is betrayed by his own family and friends and leaves Jerusalem, heads to the east and weeps on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is betrayed by one closest to him. And then he leaves Jerusalem, heads east and goes up to the Mount of Olives in a garden called Gethsemane. And there he is weeping. And there he is arrested at the sign of a betrayer's kiss. And then David, who seeks his enemies to find and bless them, well, Jesus is like that. Jesus seeks out his enemies to lavish them with loyal love. David sought out Mephibosheth instead of slaughtering the remnant of the old kingdom. He brings them in to his table and Jesus brings us in to his table and lavishes us with loyal love. And don't think I forgot that whole Goliath incident. Like David, who took out a giant snake of an enemy with the strangest counterintuitive battle plan, running and yelling and whipping around a sling, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent Satan with the oddest, most counterintuitive weapon of all time. His own cross. He won by dying. He won through his vulnerability and through the resurrection that followed. So friends, the the strange, the beautiful, the brilliant, the brutal, and the baffling life of King David, it's all meant to point us to the true king, King Jesus. And this is how the Bible works. It's not just this collection of, of old bits and pieces of wisdom sayings. It's this cohesive, heavenly designed narrative by the one who is overseeing all of history that points forward, that aches forward, that, that leans towards Jesus. So the shadows of the Old Testament become the substance of the New Testament. The promises of the Old Testament take on flesh in the New Testament. The whispers and the rumors in the Old Testament become full-throated shouts and songs in the New Testament. Now, there's some differences, though, between David and Jesus, right? We can think of a handful of differences. And Gabriel points one of those differences out to show us, yes, there's continuity, but there's a discontinuity because Jesus is way better than David. So he's going to show us one of the great differences. And here it is. David's rule and reign, they come to an end. David's faithfulness comes to an end. David's victories, they come to an end. The unity and peace that David brought to the kingdom comes to an end in the break. Each of the kings of Israel that follow him will have an expiration date. Right? And, then, and then came Rome. Right? Remember when Jesus was born, he was born under, into a, a world that was under the thumb of Caesar. Caesar, good guy, bad guy, good king, bad king? Yeah, not so good. Israel and all the world needed a good king, needed a great king, one that would rule and reign with peace and justice and compassion, one that would provide and and protect, one that would bring about peace and flourishing. We need a great king. Jesus is the great now and forever king. Jesus is the great now 
and forever king, and he rules in wisdom and power. But he's not just a great king for a little bit. Right? He's not just the great king for a cycle or for a season, right, or for a term until another election. His, his, his rule, his reign will have no end. His kingdom, of his kingdom, it says in the text, there will be no end. No shelf life, no expiration date. Jesus is a great now and forever king. That is, that is a truth that I pray will come to mean more and more to us with each passing day of our life. Jesus is the great now and forever king. Now with that floating in the air between us, follow me here for a moment. I promise you this isn't a different sermon I'm about to jump into. Follow me. This should turn our thoughts to fear. This should turn our thoughts to fear. Here's why. What is fear? What is fear when you get down to it? What's at the heart of fear? What is it? Do you know that fear has primarily to do with things coming to an end? Fear is the emotion that rises in us, beings designed for eternity, designed to experience joy and delight and wholeness and peace forever. Fear is that emotion that rises in us when it appears that we might lose good things, when there is a threat to us. Think about when fear strikes. Think about it. It's at the edge of a cliff, right? I might lose my life and I don't want to. So you back up. It's at the news of possible layoffs. Oh no, I might lose this job and all its advantages and the life I know. It is there um, at the correspondence, awaiting the correspondence of what if I'm not accepted into this college? Like I've worked my whole life to get into that specific college. Who am I if, if that college won't accept me? Fear is there on the edge of divorce. I don't want to lose my marriage. Fear is there waiting at the doctor's call. I don't want to lose my, my health. Fear is there surging through your body when you hear the diagnosis. I cannot lose my loved one to this disease. Fear has to do with loss. Fear has to do with loss. Fear has to do with things coming to an end. This is why in the New Testament in 1 John 4.18 John tells us this. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And you might be like, well, that sounds counterintuitive because if you love something, you don't want to lose it, and then there's fear. But John says, perfect love casts out fear. What is he talking about? What he's saying is that because of who God is and because of his great love for us, that all will be well. And, and don't those words just ring some of your, your hearts like a bell, like, oh, all will be well. All will be well because he has us in his hands. He will make all things right. He will give us what we need forever and forever. He will resurrect that which has, has passed but is to live on forever and ever. But the Bible teaches us in Psalm 23 to not fear. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The key there is that he is with them. The shepherd is with them as they go through the valley of the shadow of death. 2 Timothy 1 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God has not given you a spirit of fear. Paul's talking to Timothy. He's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It says novelist Marilyn Robinson, brilliant author, wrote a brilliant book called Gilead. It's iridescent. You should read it. It's incredible. She says this. She says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Ah, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. It's not a Christian habit of mind. It isn't the way that the mind of someone who's trusting in this Jesus whose kingdom will never end should work. See, Advent, we've got to be honest, Advent is a time to look straight into the darkness and the silence. To look straight into the darkness without fear, without flinching, because the good king rules and his good kingdom is without end. And I want to tell you something odd and maybe paradoxical here. You can look into that darkness And you can look through that silence with tears in your eyes and still rejoice. You can grieve and still rejoice because he is king. In the perfect love of God, a love that has taken on flesh in Jesus, there comes to us the good news of a heavenly kingdom without end. So again, the happy phrase, Jesus is the great and forever king. The great now and forever king. The peace he brings, no end. The joy he brings, no end. The love he brings, no end. Now, how does this come about? Well, our text tells us here, verses 34 through 35. So Mary said to the angel, the most reasonable thing in the world, how is this to be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. She's like, how is this going to happen? She's she's worried, right? And, And the angel says, you need not fear. For the Spirit of God will be with you. God will be with you. Emmanuel, God will be with you. And I get it. I understand this is not a direct, like, how it works with us. It's very different. But in a parallel way, it is how it works with us. God's spirit comes to us as a gift and births in us a whole new way of being, a whole new heart. We are favored ones. You are a favored one. The grace of God, this undeserved gift, comes to you and new life springs up from within your very being. That will then alter this world because that love will go out to minister to others. He is God with us, and so we need not fear. Okay, that sounds really nice, but what about all of this? Like, what about all this? What about all the pain? What about all the darkness? What about all the shadows? It's there, right? Yeah, yes, it's there. But I want to use an analogy here, and just be gracious to me. It's an analogy, Right? It is a lower and lesser way of talking about a higher and holier truth. But here it is. Jesus' first coming. It's like D-Day. It's like D-Day. That definitive day when the back of the enemy was broken through an incredible, costly, bloodletting sacrifice. 
back of evil is broken. But his second coming, his second coming will be like VE Day. Or if you want to get real technical, VJ Day. For those of you who know history. But the idea is that victory over Europe Day, now the battles are done. It's over. It's over. But there's time that lapsed between V-Day, right, and V-E-Day, between D-Day and V-E-Day, between the day the battle was fought, and then there was all this time where the darkness had to be pushed back, and, and the skirmishes had to be fought, the, the last outposts of, of evil had to fall, but then there was V-E-Day, and there was the great declaration where it was over. That's what we're in now. He has come, went from the cradle to the cross. He, he broke the back he, of, of the serpent, right? He won, and he will come back, and there will be the full-on dancing in the streets, feasting, because all the shadows are gone, all the last outposts of evil, all the suffering will be done away with. And in the meantime, and in the meantime, in the in-between time, for the time being, what do we do? Well, we fight back the shadows with the love of Christ. So friends, his kingdom has broken open in this earth and is spreading to the peace he brings, no end. To the joy he brings, no end. To the justice he brings, no end. To the compassion he brings, no end. To, to the goodness he brings, no end. To the beauty he brings, no end. To the truth he brings no end. And to the love that he brings no end. So Advent is a season in which we can be deeply honest and face the darkness. And we, we have to, because isn't this a season where you suddenly feel the dissonance between what is and what should be really strongly? It's why we go into the, the blue season, the season of depression, because people feel like things should be this way, but they're this way. Why do we feel the dissonance so strongly? It's because we are in that in-between, and we know it shouldn't be this way. And so it's, it's as um, Fleming Rutledge said again, as I started, let me come to a close. She says, to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but... To live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. Or in the words of the great hymn, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So friends, because God has and God continues to fulfill his promises, Advent calls us to fear not. To fear not to rejoice and as we enter into the Advent season next Sunday, we do so with gospel realism. The world's weary, the world's weary, but this weary world rejoices because the true shepherd king, born in Bethlehem, the true serpent slayer, the true curse reverser has come. He will come again. His rule, his reign of love and goodness is a kingdom without end. Advent begins in the dark, but it ends with a glorious and forever light. Heavenly Father, you are good. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have brought hope to this world. And we're tasting glimpses of it. We're, we're seeing your kingdom of righteousness spread through your people like the rays of dawn pushing back the night. And so, Lord, we come to the season 
that we are about to step into with uh, the realistic understanding of that there's pain. Help us to enter into the season with a great joy and rejoicing and to walk alongside those in the darkness and to realize that we can see, um, see the darkness and the brokenness through, um, through tear-filled eyes, but yet rejoice because our hope is sure. VE Day is coming. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for this table of grace that we are about to eat from. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.